0: My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's an excruciating cry. We recognize it. We've just said it. Torture of despair, loneliness, pain. Who of us, some little way at least, has not in our life sometime felt abandoned? By someone we thought to be dependable, and abandoned by God, or or if not us, who of us hasn't seen someone else abandoned? My God, my God, why? As we uh, recited those words, as we remember that Jesus recited them himself from the cross they are heart and gut-wrenching for us to hear as surely they were shattering sounds for those who watched Jesus' tortured body hang hang on that cross here's my contemporary earthy picture of abandonment a couple of years ago um, a young woman, my husband and I know, adopted a two year old who had been living in foster care. They were visiting us, and when the visit was over, his mother told him more than once that it was time to leave. Finally, she tired of his resistance, and as most mothers I know would do when they're tired of the resistance, she left. Walking down the stairs out our front door, And as you know, what you would expect to happen once she leaves, you would expect the two-year-old to wake up and follow along. But that's not what happened this time. This two-year-old descended to the floor, collapsed, dissolved into wails of tears, wails of despair. He was sure he had been abandoned. And, of course, he had learned that. He had learned that such abandonment was possible. And I will never forget those tortured cries of abandonment. Why? Why have you forsaken me? But Jesus is no abandoned two-year-old. And his upbringing taught him very different lessons Jesus, 33, had never, never known anything but love and care from his earthly parents and even more from his heavenly father. You'll remember some of the demonstrations of his father's love. Remember at his baptism, the Holy Spirit comes down like a dove. Remember those words. My son, my beloved with whom I am well pleased. Day after day, Jesus had conversations with his father. The gospel accounts recorded, record them almost offhandedly. As was his custom, early in the morning, off he went into the desert or the wilderness. He went off for these heavenly tete-a-tetes. And so often, these conversations were followed by new actions or... Or new words. He chose his disciples. He went on to new cities. This juxtaposition of tete a tete and action makes us recognize that these conversations, these beloved conversations, were sources of nourishment and guidance. Then remember at the Transfiguration, he is re anointed. Peter, James, and John are there to see it. They see Jesus shining as he speaks of his upcoming death with Elijah and Moses. And then they hear those words. Remember them? This is my son, the beloved one. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. And surrounded by the cloud of God's power as he speaks these words of love... Peter, James, and John are flattened. Jesus knew love from his father. But think, too, of all those other indicators of Jesus' belovedness, incidents that show his deep, deep knowledge and experience of God's love. Consider his changing water into wine at the wedding in Cana and so many other miracles of of healing and feeding Jesus knew that the Father's love would course through him as he acted and do something big. And think about the times he was able to walk through an angry mob, who an angry mob that was ready to stone him. He walks, around, uh, he walks right out, unscathed, knowing that God would protect him. And remember all those times when he had just the perfect response to those slimy, Pharisees and uh, lawyers who are trying to trick him, trying to make him choose between illegal or immoral, Jesus knew that his father could be counted on to give him just the right words. His beloved son answers. And don't forget all those parables that Jesus told to help us understand what he knew so deeply of God's fatherly love. Like the prodigal son whose father, without reason, welcomes the son back. The good shepherd who searches out that one lost lamb. Imagine it. Imagine living like that with such deep knowledge and experience of uninterrupted belovedness. And I love this about Jesus, don't you? Jesus' understanding of this love, of the Father's love, pours out in love for those around him, especially those that you and I would tend to overlook. People, especially those outsiders, all kinds of outsiders, they just couldn't get enough of him. They swarmed all around him, because partly because they loved how he'd take on the authorities on their behalf. Risking his reputation, even his life, over and over, long before the crucifixion, he was doing that. So eventually, everywhere he goes, people get up close. They can't get enough of him. The Samaritan divorcee, well, divorcee, etc. The ostracized tax collectors, Zacchaeus and Matthew... The Canaanite woman who begs for her daughter. The whores, the blind, the lepers, the blind, the lame, the bleeding. They just couldn't get enough of him because they felt it. They felt that love. They felt that love that Jesus knew from his father. And now, now. This one, having lived in the sunshine of God's favor, this son, this beloved, this heart of God's own heart, now he's hanging on a cross, abandoned by his followers, from all those who couldn't get enough of him. Abandoned. And abandoned seemingly by God himself. And and remember... Jesus isn't there because he did something wrong. Jesus isn't there because he refused to obey or decided not to follow his father God. Jesus is there because he refused not to obey. He followed. He obeyed the will of his father, knowing how costly it would become. Because he loved and trusted his father... Because he experienced the love he experienced overflowed in extravagant love for his people. Because of that, he hung there. And in the midst of this extravagant, excruciating love, Jesus cries out, My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? To everyone, even to us, this suffering looks like the end. The bystanders, the chief priests, the elders, the scribes, all of them are mocking him. Against this background of torture and mocking, Jesus' cry echoes through the centuries. Why? 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 After all, God, I'm the one you love. He's the one you love. Why? And then more mocking. He's calling for Elijah. Wait, maybe Elijah will come, or or maybe I should say it. Let's see if Elijah will show up. (laughs) But wait, wait. Something more is going on here. Jesus' painful cry is actually a quotation, as you know. You've just read those words in Psalm 22. He's reciting and identifying with that psalm, written centuries earlier, a psalm he'd memorized a psalm that had soaked into his heart. It's a brilliantly accurate picture of Jesus' predicament. Why are you so far from my cry? You do not answer. Our forefathers put our trust in you, and you answered them. I'm scorned and mocked. Again, a haunting reality, a haunting reflection of, of the current reality. He trusted in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him if he delights in him. The very taunts Jesus had been hearing are now the words he remembers and recognizes from that psalm. Don't forget the psalm in Jesus' cry. You are the one who took me out of the womb. I've been safe with you. Hey, Don't you remember me? I'm your beloved one. And the psalm goes on, as you know, to describe Jesus' physical condition in eerie detail. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart within my breast is melting wax. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count my bones. Packs of dogs are at my feet. Gangs of evil doers all around. Save me from the sword. Save me from the dogs. Save me from the lion's mouth, the horns of wild bull. And then... Smack in the middle of it. Smack in the middle of this pleading, crying for help. Smack in the middle of all this pain. You have answered me. They leave out that little word in the prayer book version. But Ellen Davis, one of my favorite Old Testament scholars, clues me into this intriguing shift. You can see the shift in the psalm, but you might not have seen that little place where it shifts. She says... The recognition is that sudden and that surprising. So surprising that a lot of translators through the centuries have changed the text of verse 21 because they could not believe what the Hebrew so plainly says. In the middle of a sentence, mouth open for one more tortured scream for deliverance, the psalmist in a flash knows that the battle is over, the victory won. From the horns of wild oxen, you have answered me. The prayer book leaves us out completely. The ESV changes you answered me to you rescued me. But that's wrong too. Jesus is still on the cross when God answers. The translators couldn't conceive of this middle ground hanging on the cross. God answers him without taking the psalmist out of danger. Davis goes on. The psalmist may still be pinned on the horns of wild oxen, yet suddenly he knows beyond doubting that God has answered, and that changes everything. God's answer changes cries of abandonment and outrage, desperate pleas to praise, wave upon wave of praise. And now the anguished psalmist the one who was as good as dead, thrust into the grave by God's own hand. Now he is calling all Israel to sing the hallelujah chorus to the God who answers prayer. The psalm continues, but it is almost a different psalm, so transformed is the language of its second half. Verse after verse of praise for the God who hears and blesses who rules and acts, verse after verse, memorized by Jesus, Jesus the Beloved One. Verses he recited as he hung there, a picture of abandonment and a picture of God answering in the midst of the most devastating darkness. What Jesus discovers, rediscovers, And teaches us is that in the midst of suffering, however excruciating or evil, God will answer. God will be faithful. God will not abandon us, no matter how much it looks to the contrary. Now, of course, as Christians, we are Easter people. And we know the ending of the story, even as we sit here on Good Friday. We know the story has a happy ending. This story, this story. But what's important not to miss here is the fact that Jesus understands, understands and experiences that happy ending in a very profound way, even before the happy ending happens in the midst of excruciating suffering in the midst of a scene that looks so much like abandonment, pure and simple abandonment by his heavenly father. Jesus knows what the scornful crowds miss with all their religious arrogance. Jesus knows that he is still even hanging on the cross he is still the beloved one and he knows that god his beloved father can be trusted and so on this good friday jesus calls us from the cross if you will <clears throat> he calls us to follow him to follow him to the cross we know And we're called to remember this day that walking the way of the cross involves laying down our lives in extravagant, costly, even deadly love for others. He calls us to be willing to bear the pain of this costly love, even if others will look at it with scorn. But Jesus' cry on the cross challenges us with another important aspect of walking the way of the cross. He calls us not to forget that even in the midst of excruciating sorrow and pain, God, our Heavenly Father, has not abandoned us, however much it looks to the contrary. My God... My God, why have you forsaken me? Becomes, on the horns of wild oxen, you answered me. And finally, they shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it.
1: The story we've just heard is full of details we can miss, so if you'd like to follow along in your pew Bible, the passage again is Genesis 22, which is found on page 15. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. God tested Abraham. When we hear these words, it can seem a bit unfair. We might even have a visceral reaction to the God of the universe putting humans to the test. And this isn't just some innocuous test of Abraham's faithfulness. God demands that Abraham slaughter his only child. He says, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. With each word, God drives the knife further into Abraham's heart. God draws out his reference to Isaac to make a point, to show Abraham the full cost of the sacrifice he is being commanded to make. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. In Genesis 21, Abraham has lost his firstborn, Ishmael, because of the jealousy of his wife, Sarah. Isaac is his only son left. Isaac is his miracle child, the one God provided against all the odds, extreme old age, barrenness, and years of waiting. God has just miraculously provided an heir to fulfill his extravagant promises to Abraham, and now he is demanding the heir's death with no explanation. How could God command Abraham to sacrifice his only son? And did you notice how God addresses him? This is the first time that God has called him by his new name, Abraham. In Genesis 17, God renames Abram as Abraham, which means father of a people. The name Abraham is a mark of God's covenant promises to Abram. Listen to what God promises in Genesis 17. As for me, this is my covenant with you. You shall be the ancestor of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the ancestor of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And I will make nations of you. And kings shall come from you. So we must ask again, how could God command Abraham to sacrifice his only son. Well, I don't think we can flesh out complete answers to all the nuances contained in this question today, I would like to meditate with you on two foundational truths which emerge when we ask this question of the text. The first insight is that God is looking for radical obedience— The second insight is that God's goal is our redemption. When we look at the narrative of Genesis 22, the writer provides us no no comforting thoughts, no reassurances. The reader experiences the uncertainty of this test alongside of Abraham. We don't even get a window into Abraham's thoughts and feelings. All we see is the brutal reality of what Abraham is required to do and then watch him march obediently in cadence with God's command. For a people who have as their founding document a declaration of independence, Abraham's style of obedience is uncomfortable, maybe even disturbing. And no, Jonathan, I'm not suggesting that we rectify this. ...by returning to the British Commonwealth. (laughs) Abraham's radical obedience to God... ...rightly disturbs us. Obedience is painful. Obedience is not something we are born with. Not even Jesus was born obedient. Scripture teaches us that Jesus learned obedience... ...by suffering. Suffering that culminated in the cross... Here's what Hebrews chapter 5, verses 8 and 9 say. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Not even Jesus could escape God's test of obedience. Isaac on the altar and Jesus on the cross are a chilling display of what radical obedience looks like. In both cases, that obedience was painful. In fact, we don't like to consider all the promises of Scripture. Recently, the small group my wife, Megan, and I lead here at Church of the Ascension um, was discussing um, 2 Timothy 3.12, which states, and this is a promise of Scripture... All who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not very reassuring. Perhaps more poignantly in Mark 8:35, Jesus says, "For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will save it." Radical obedience to God is only learned and revealed Through suffering and sacrifice. To use the language of today's passage, now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. God commands Abraham to sacrifice his only son so that Abraham might learn radical obedience. Abraham's faithfulness to God is not revealed by what he believes, but by what he does. Abraham's test is also an integral piece of God's redemption of humanity. Abraham takes the first step of obedience in the long chain of Israel's redemption history that concludes with Jesus on the cross. His obedience sets off a chain reaction, which will eventually undo the result of Adam and Eve's disobedience in the Garden of Eden. Abraham's obedience brings about the provision of a ram as a substitute offering for Isaac. Later, when Israel is enslaved in Egypt, the Lord passed over Israel's firstborn sons by the substitute sacrifice of a Passover lamb. And today, we remember when the Lord passed over our sins by the substitute sacrifice of Jesus. Abraham's first steps of obedience towards what looked like death paved the way for life-giving redemption, a life-giving redemption of Adam and Eve's disobedience. In the end, It is the obedient Jesus' journey towards death that opens the way of life for all of us who have been disobedient. Now, many scholars have pointed to how this story functions as a polemic, an attack on child sacrifice, since God ultimately commands Abraham to not harm Isaac and supplies a substitute offering. I think that's right, but more importantly, I think this story shows us in shocking detail the worth and value of a human life. Every human life belongs to God. He is the God who makes life possible. He owns every single human life. Isaac was his creation. His child His possession. Four months ago, Megan and I found out that she was pregnant. From the moment we found out that she was pregnant, we have prayed together daily for our unborn child. As we have persevered in prayer for our child, the Lord has continued to impress upon me that our baby girl belongs to him before she belongs to me. This has only served to increase how precious she is in my sight. Here is a child of God that is being entrusted to our care for a brief time. Our task is to see to it that she loves God for all of eternity. God's goal in giving Abraham a child was to redeem a people that he could have a loving relationship with, for all eternity. God's redemption of humanity begins on a hilltop. In the land of Moriah. And is completed on a hilltop outside of Jerusalem. The one whom John the Baptist calls the Lamb of God came 2,000 years ago. As a substitute offering for the sins of the whole world. God's greatest gift to humanity is his son, his only son, Jesus, whom he loves. In the New Testament, the word for gift is the same as the word for grace. Theologians throughout the centuries have talked about the gift of God and Jesus' sacrifice on the cross as God's grace towards sinners. Sinners. In the West, this has gradually changed into talk of God's free gift of forgiveness. Now, while it is certainly true that forgiveness cannot be bought or earned, it is certainly not true that forgiveness is without cost. God's gift to us was not cheap. In his landmark work, The Cost of Discipleship, Dietrich Bonhoeffer draws a clear distinction between the cheap grace, which has grown up like a weed in Western Christianity, and the costly grace proclaimed in Jesus' passion and crucifixion. Listen to what he says. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ— It is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin. And grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it cost God the life of his son. Ye were bought at a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. When we look at Jesus on the cross, we see the costly grace of God on display. We see a fulfillment of the radical obedience of Abraham. We see a radical call to costly obedience and costly redemption. My sisters and brothers, are you prepared to respond to this call to radical obedience? Are there things God is asking you to do that seem too painful to even contemplate? Will you learn the radical obedience of Abraham and Jesus and obey God even when it hurts? In other words, will you walk the way of the cross with our dear Lord Jesus Christ? As we step forward in our call to radical obedience, we can do so trusting in the goodness of God. Like Abraham, we can trust that what God's command, what God commands will be far better than what we would command. At the end of the day, God does not require Abraham to sacrifice his son. But at the end of Good Friday, the people of God demand the sacrifice of God's son, shouting "Crucify him! Crucify him!" Friends, Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Take up your cross and follow Jesus. Amen.
2: Pray with me. Father, may your Holy Spirit be with us during this time. Speak through me, in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to begin this meditation with a poem entitled Christmas Morning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. And don't panic, I haven't got the wrong holiday. It's by Vassar Miller. On Christmas Day I weep, Good Friday to rejoice. I watch the child asleep, does he half dream the choice the man must make and keep? At Christmas time I sigh, for my Good Friday hope outflung the child's arms lie to span in their brief scope the death the man must die. Come Christmas tide I groan to hear Good Friday's pealing, the man racked to the bone has made his hurt my healing, has made my ache his own. Slay me, pierce to the core with Christmas penitence, so I who newborn sore to that child's innocence may wound the man no more. I love Vassar Miller. The depth of her faith is reflected so well in her poetry, but at a great cost. For if you're unacquainted with her, she lived her life with cerebral palsy that caused her immense pain daily. She was not an idealist by any stretch, but out of her suffering, she managed to carve some very beautiful poetry. And as I reflected on Good Friday, I first thought of her poem. And and then I thought of the first time I had a Holy Week experience in an Anglican church. I just started attending St. Mark's Church in Geneva while at Wheaton. And fell in love with the liturgy. But the first time I went through Holy Week, I really got it. I remember being overcome by all this imagery and thinking, Wow, this is what it must have been like for the disciples. And today as we meditate on Good Friday, I want to steepen that a bit. I want us to imagine it. What must it have been like for the disciples and for Jesus? Why did he do it? What did it mean for his followers then and now? Let me paint a few scenes for us to think about together, but we must be quick for the day is lengthening and an interminable darkness is looming over us as evening approaches. Walk with me. This week we've been reminded of the frenetic whirlwind in Jerusalem during this particular Passover. The city is more crowded than normal with visitors from all around the world only adding to the frantic and chaotic whirlwind. Talk is spread of another Messiah for Israel, crowds careening their necks to have a view and the strong hand of the army, trying desperately to keep a lid on this powder keg before it breaks into total anarchy. And in the midst of this noise is the first image I want to look at. The scene is from The Passion of the Christ, and though it's admittedly a little extra biblical, it's nevertheless compelling. The scene in particular that I'm thinking of brings me to tears every time I see it. It's the place where Jesus, under the weight of his cross, stumbles. And Mary, his mother, has been madly scampering through the back streets, trying to get near her son again, trying to get through the crowds. And seeing him falling, she has, just for the briefest of of moments, this memory of when he was a child and him falling down and her mother's heart just wanting to go in and swoop him up and give him solace. But the dream, her reverie is broken as she refocuses on the man before her falling under the immense weight of this cross. He's nearly unrecognizable after his beatings and torture. And her heart must have been torn looking at her son so crushed and disfigured. But as she races to him to try to come to whatever aid, she falls near him on the ground and and their eyes meet. And she doesn't see a whimpering child in her memory. She sees a man. She sees her son. But instead of weeping, he rather has a strange, calm, settledness about him. And he looks up at her under the weight of this cross and says, See, Mother, I make all things new. Push pause on that image. See, Mother, I make all things new. The next scene comes as we consider the man, this teacher, this rabbi, who now has gone in one brief week from being hailed as the Messiah with the pomp and and admiration of the crowds to being the one drug out late at night, handed over to the Roman authorities. Pilate agrees to flog him in order to keep peace with the Jewish leaders because the last thing he needs is another Jewish uprising. But in the midst of this, we see Jesus' focus and resolve. A crown of thick, sharp thorns is woven and beaten into his scalp, his beard being pulled out, his face being spit on and beaten, and his back being shredded and cut mercilessly by the Roman scourge. And he doesn't back down. He bears his cross through the streets of the town where he taught in the temple, and along the way the same crowds are now in a state of mocking, condemning, spitting, throwing things. And he falls under the weight and has to be helped back up, but he keeps going. He doesn't fight back. He doesn't retaliate. And in the midst of this, he's not only being ridiculed, he's also left alone and friendless. His disciples have all left him. And now they've sidelined themselves. They're whole up in some room somewhere, afraid, confused, under distress, wondering what the Jews or the Romans might do to him now that they see what they're doing to Jesus. And, and wondering in their minds, we thought he was the one. We we thought he all the miracles. What what do we do with this? So what is Jesus doing? He's doing something new. He's doing something unheard of and undreamt of. Even though the prophet Isaiah had predicted it seven hundred years before, and the details are sobering. Listen to the similarities. Isaiah 50, I gave my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who plucked my beard. My face I did not shield from buffets and spitting. Because the sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, and I know I will not be put to shame. And Isaiah 52, just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man, and his form marred beyond human likeness. And what we read in Isaiah 53, despised, rejected, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. The truth is, this day we're in is his passion. And more specifically, we are his passion. His passion was to once and for all take the punishment for sin. Our sin, your sin, my sin. And he's taking that upon himself. He's taking our punishment. He's taking our hell. He's taking our separation from his Father on himself. And when he says... My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's not a good teacher who is misunderstood by the religious leaders of his day. And he's not a prophet gone amok that needs to be punished. He's the son. He's the son of the Most High, asking his father, Why, Daddy, why must I do this? And like the prayer in the garden, he relinquishes to his father's will and he says, Into your hands I commit my spirit. Why did Jesus die? He died to take away our sin, he died to break the power of death and hell and restore us to his father. You see, counter to conventional wisdom and popular opinion with God, it is personal. The last scene from what we read in First Peter moves us several years down the road. It's the backstory to where we started in First Peter 2, is Peter, no longer a betrayer, has been reconciled to Jesus. He's now an apostle. And we find that he's writing to a group of Gentile believers in crisis. They are in an area where few missionaries have gone, and as Gentile followers of Jesus and not Jews. Very important distinction. They don't have the history. They are out of sync with their culture. Their neighbors and relatives don't understand them. And they're beginning to resent this newfound affection of theirs and change in lifestyle that they've all of a sudden had. And they're trying to cajole them and pressure them back into a more acceptable way of life. One governor of this region uh, well said this when he, said that, when he noted that the contagion of this superstition... Christianity has now spread not only to the cities, but also to the villages and farms. The world, the world around these new believers that, that Peter is talking to sees them as atheistic, antisocial, factious, and even subversive. They don't have a good sense of who they are, these Christians. And that's why Jesus is, is writing to, or that's why Peter is writing to them. What they do know is that the cost of following him is very personal and is very real. And given that, it's no wonder that Peter accurately calls them elect exiles, acknowledging both their chosenness as well as the fact that they are now fully alien in the place where they recently called home. And as Peter unpacks his narrative throughout 1 Peter, there's a rhythm to it. He reminds them that since they're the elect and salvation is theirs, and now they're listening to God, then they need to do what he is. They need to be holy. But far from just wanting them to be moral, He's reminding them of who they truly are. Peter shows them how Jesus is the living stone, which was foretold in the Old Testament. And his followers are living stones, which God is shaping into a new spiritual house. And Peter refers to them using language that's exclusively used for Israel. He calls them a holy priesthood, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And what Peter is saying is you are part of a new people, a chosen people, but you are not alone. You are part of this bigger story that God has been doing since the beginning of time came through the Jewish people, but now you are part of that salvation history that goes all the way back to creation. And more importantly, you're part of this new movement that God is doing in Christ to reconcile the world. And what's their part in this? One thing that Peter tells them is to live honorably among the Gentiles. And how does that get worked out? Well, the the way that it gets worked out, as he goes into later in uh, chapter 2, is something that the world would never have suspected. He says, be submissive. Submit to political authorities, kings, governors, etc. Slaves submit to masters, wives to husbands, and vice versa. And at first blush, blush, this may seem like a recipe for disaster. But if you consider a slave, someone who is at the lowest end of the totem pole, they don't don't, uh, have any power. For them, it's actually a breath of fresh air. Let me tell you why. Peter is saying that even though you may feel powerless, if you willingly submit to God, you choose to submit to God, even in your lowly state, God can use you to influence people, no matter where you are. And of course, the grand example is Jesus, who submitted himself to the Father. He didn't try to take things into his own hands because he trusted that God would make it right. And in closing, let me offer two thoughts. First, this fancy podium up here, this stuff, this is not the church. You, me, we are the church. We are built with material that can't be taken in any court case. We are living stones cut from the stone that the builders rejected. And we may be facing a lot of tumults, but friends, we have a lot of friends throughout history and frankly throughout the world that are already experiencing such things. God is at work in us, we are his church. Let us live honorably among the Gentiles. And secondly, you may may believe this story of Christianity, of Jesus. You may not. Uh, The only thing that I can tell you is that when I was a child, about six years old, I asked Jesus into my heart. And it didn't really mean a whole lot. My parents weren't very active in church life. But later on in life, I encountered a God who knew me and who loved me and who so, wanted, uh, who so loved me that he bothered to take the time to want me to reconcile with my father. Because in reconciling with my father, he reconciled my father to himself. I know the father's heart. I know because of the passion today. And I encourage you to come to him. Maybe you're close to him. Get closer. There's nothing to fear. This kind of love doesn't back down. Amen.